find some ancient words from the book of Esther. 2,400 years old, these words. And um, if you're having a hard time finding Esther, it doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It's hard to... It's hard to find. If you want to find Psalms right in the middle and then head toward the beginning, past Job, then you'll find Esther. And I know our AV folks are wondering about my microphone. Um, I, I lost the little clip that goes with my lavalier mic. Last time, though, I did a baptism, I lost my clothes. So this is a small, <laughs> small problem compared to what the problem I had a couple of weeks ago. So I'll just use, I'll just use this one. Antonio Salieri was the famous composer, influential music composer in uh, Austria, in Vienna, in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He was an insider with the elite. The fame that his uh, musical compositions brought him was intoxicating. And then along came a young upstart composer uh, named Wolfgang uh, Amadeus Mozart. And Mozart was so talented. Of course, the people of Austria appreciated Salieri, but, but Mozart, well, Mozart was in, a, was in a whole nother league. And Mozart soon replaced Salieri as the most admired musical composer in Austria, and it nearly killed Salieri. In the movie Mozart, uh, uh, Amadeus that tells the story of Mozart and Salieri, we see Salieri in the latter part, the latter years of his life, threatened by Mozart's popularity and tormented by his jealousy of the young genius composer. In the movie, we see him obsessed with jealousy. We see him have a nervous breakdown. We see Salieri attempt to take his own life. And in confession to his priest, Salieri said these words. Everybody liked me. I liked myself until he came. I liked myself. I was okay with who I was, Salieri said until Mozart came along. Those words express a common human feeling, the feeling of jealousy. That I'd be okay with who I am if, if he or she or they weren't so talented, so successful, so good-looking, so popular. I'd be okay with me is a pretty common emotion were it not for him, or her, or them. We even see that in the Bible. If there had been a contest at the Rehoboth High School about 1010 BC, if there had been a contest for the most likely to succeed, Saul would certainly have won. Saul was tall and confident and charismatic, a natural born leader. When it came time for Israel to need a king, Saul was the obvious choice. Saul had it all. But fast forward to the end of his life. On the last page of the book of 1 Samuel, 
And Saul, the natural born leader, is lying in a pool of blood, dead. Here's the backstory Saul was king of Israel, reveling in his royal popularity, when a young upstart shepherd boy named David killed Goliath. And David then replaced Saul as the most popular hero in Israel. And it just about killed Saul. He could have been grateful for David. David loved Saul. David was loyal to the king. He would have done anything for Saul. But Saul could not rejoice over David. He could not be grateful for David because he was so jealous of David. In the book of 1 Samuel, we watch the latter years of Saul's life, threatened by the popularity of the young giant killer, tormented by his jealousy over David, until one day he fell on his own sword and died in a pool of blood and self-pity. And then there was Haman. Haman's story takes place in the story of Esther in the 5th century B.C. Haman was a popular political personality in the Persian palace. But he couldn't enjoy his popularity. He couldn't enjoy his role. He could not enjoy his influence in the Persian palace because of his jealousy over a man, a Jewish man, named Mordecai. And that's where we, we pick up the story. The king has just thrown a parade for Mordecai, and it just about killed Haman. Haman is, is expressing all that he has going for him in, in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth. Pay attention, he's wealthy. His many sons, which of course was considered a great blessing, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated, the king had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. He is a prominent political personality. And that's not all, Haman added. And he's talking to his family now. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all, all this gives me no satisfaction. All this. My wealth. My family. My prominent position in the palace. All this gives me no satisfaction. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. It's as if Saul said, it's as if Haman said, I, everybody liked me, I liked me, until he came. And isn't that so human for us to, to say, I, I really can't get any satisfaction with all the blessings I have, with my, my wealth, my relative wealth, with my family, with my health, my job, my position. All that gives me no satisfaction because of him, or her, or them. If we had time, we would dig deeper into the rest of the story, how Haman built those 75 feet high gallows to hang his 
nemesis Mordecai on, but you remember maybe the, the, his, his plan backfired and Haman was hanged on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. Esther 7.10, one of the most poignant phrases in all the Bible. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Haman's jealousy of Mordecai literally killed him. Saul's jealousy of David killed him. And jealousy kills bit by bit, piece by piece, little by little, all of us who are jealous. Dwight L. Moody, the the Billy Graham of the 1800s, told a fable, a parable if you will, about an eagle that was jealous of another eagle that flew higher and faster and better than this jealous eagle did. The jealous eagle came upon a, a hunter, a bow hunter, and said, would you would you kill that eagle up there for me? I'll be glad to, the hunter said. But he said, I need a, I need a feather for my arrow. So the, the jealous eagle pulled an eagle from his wing and handed it to the hunter. And the hunter shot but missed. And the hunter said, I'll need another feather. And, he, and the jealous eagle pulled another feather, feather from his wing. And, and the bow uh, hunter shot again and missed again. And he missed and he missed and he missed. And he kept pulling feathers. The jealous eagle kept pulling feathers out of his wings until, until he couldn't fly. And the hunter turned and easily killed the eagle and had him for supper. Moody's point was, jealousy will kill you. And most of us, if not all of us, have a tendency toward jealousy. Jealousy over how popular a classmate is. Jealousy over the accomplishments of our friends' children. Jealousy over a co-worker's promotion. Jealousy over the success of one of our peers. It's impossible to be be joyous and jealous at the same time. I was refereeing a a football game one Saturday morning with little guys. I enjoy uh, refereeing the games for the little guys. The guys are great. Parents, not so much. But I enjoy refereeing for the little guys. And so this one team desperately needed a score. And they... They handed the ball to a, to a running back who broke through the line and ran for about a 50-yard touchdown, and the fans cheered, and the teams celebrated. And then I looked over to the sideline of that team that had just scored, and the coach was talking to a little boy. The little boy didn't have his helmet on, and the little boy was crying. I kind of knew the coach, so afterwards I asked him, what was the story with the little, the little boy who was crying after the touchdown? And he kind of laughed, the coach did, and he said, He was crying because another little boy scored the touchdown and and he wanted to. I wish we grew out of that. I wish we we grew out of that, that inability to rejoice with other people when we think it should have been, it should have been us. And most all of us are prone to Jealousy. Jimmy Carter talks about that in his book, Sources of Strength. Now, whatever you think about Jimmy Carter's politics, his character is widely admired. And in that book, he writes, remember, this is the former president of the United States. All of us are prone to jealousy. I'm no exception. I'll admit I'm inclined to envy the accomplishments of my successors in public office. 
Jealousy is a trait that I struggle to overcome. Think about that. This is a man who held the highest office in our land, held the most powerful position in the world. And he said, I got to be honest, I'm jealous. And I'm jealous sometimes of the successes of my successors. Most of us have a tendency toward jealousy. So how can we overcome jealousy? If it's so deadly, and if most of us have a tendency to overcome it, how do we overcome jealousy? Three things. Number one, confess our sin. Two, understand our identity. Three, redefine our success. Number one, confess our sin. The sin of jealousy. You know where the word sin first appears in the Bible, right? It's the story of Adam and Eve, right? Nope. It's in the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain killed Abel. That's the first time the word sin appears, right? Nope. The first time the word sin appears in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And it's not over Cain killing Abel, it's over Cain's jealousy of Abel. Jealousy is not just a little peccadillo, a little foible, a little fault. The Bible calls jealousy sin. In fact, in Galatians 5, the Bible lists jealousy in the list with sexual immorality, idolatry, and witchcraft. Jealousy is a big deal. So the first and inevitable and necessary step in overcoming jealousy is to say, God, I come clean. This is a sin. This is disappointing to you, and it's bad for me. I confess my sin and the shallow self-centeredness out of which my sin of jealousy grows. One, confess our sin. Two, understand our identity. Most jealousy grows out of feelings of insecurity and inferiority. So if I'm insecure and I'm, I feel inferior, then life for me is one big contest, and I'm always trying to prove how valuable I am, and I'm always trying to demonstrate to myself that I have value. So I'm always in a contest with you or my peers, and I'm always trying to outdo them. And if they do better than I, then I feel badly because life is a contest if I feel insecure and inferior. But if I'm comfortable in my skin, if I don't feel insecure, if I'm comfortable with who God created me to be, then life Life is not a contest, and I'm okay if one of my peers excels, does better than I. And all of us can feel secure. All of us can be thrilled with who we are. Jeremiah 1.5 says, God molded, shaped you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, the creator of the universe was involved in shaping you into who you would become. If children were born, babies were born with a tag like your clothes have, all those tags would read, designed by the creator of the universe. Inestimable value and impressive purpose. Come with your birth certificate. You don't have to prove it, your value. You don't have to earn it, your value. It comes with birth. If we will understand that, that we really were shaped in our mother's womb by our Creator, if we really will understand that we were designed by the Creator of the universe, if we will understand that inestimable value and, and infinite impressive purpose come with the birth certificate, then there will be little room in our hearts for jealousy. Confess our sin, understand our identity, and three, redefine our success. You know, how well you do in school, that's a measure, that's a a gauge of success. How we do in our vocation, you know, where we work, that's a, that's a gauge, it's a measurement of success. 
But neither school nor vocation is the most important measurement of success. The opinion of people who barely know me is not an accurate measurement of my success. I believe my success is measured, first of all, by those people who are going to be sitting on the first two or three rows at my funeral. My success is determined largely by the kind of husband I am to carry, the kind of father and father-in-law I am, the kind of papacy I am to my grandchildren. The, the real measurement of my success is what about the people with whom I work most closely, those who see me every day? What do they think about my character? I believe the measurement of my success is in the, my friendships, my close friendships, the, the people who know me best. Now, I know sometimes family is hard, and sometimes you work hard at family, and, and things don't work out like you'd want them to, and sometimes even friendships don't work out. But, but am I doing my best among those closest to me? That is a measurement of success. And, and, and what does God think of me? Oh, I know He loves me deeply. But what does he think when he looks at my heart? When he peels back all those facades, when he peels back all those things that I pretend, and he sees my heart, what does, what does my father think of my heart? That is an important and accurate measurement of success. If we will confess our sin and understand our identity and redefine success, again, there will be little room in our hearts for jealousy. I want to circle back as I kind of head toward the finish line. I want to circle back to the story of David and Saul because there's a third person in that story that we need to pay attention to. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of King Saul, the heir apparent. Jonathan was the one who would be the next king. But he wasn't. God tapped David instead. And Jonathan, Jonathan's response to that becomes a role model for us all. He cheered for David. He loved David. He supported David. He even protected David against some of the crazy schemes of his jealous father, Saul. Jonathan was not tapped for something that he, he could have believed was rightfully his. And the truth is, sometimes you and I are not tapped either for those things we think we deserve. The head coach doesn't always make us the starting quarterback. The, the band director doesn't always make us the first chair in the orchestra. The, the big boss doesn't always give us the promotion we thought we deserved or the office, the corner office that we wanted. And when somebody else is tapped for something that we wanted and believed we deserved, then our character is clearly revealed. Jonathan becomes a role model for us, able to cheer for David. Though David got what he at least could have believed was rightfully his. Our son Landon was a good baseball player. He played in Kentucky uh, all the way from Little League up through high school. Did really well. He was an all-star in Little League, and um, his junior year in high school was all-district at Bullet East High School in Mount Washington, Kentucky. 
And then we are such awful parents. We moved before the summer of his senior year to Richmond, Virginia. With his blessing, we moved. And he was looking forward to sports at this new school. When it came baseball season, Landon made the team, but he didn't make the starting lineup. He was all district in Kentucky and all dugout in Virginia. As it turns out, he needed eyeglasses, but that was just poor parenting. We didn't know, and that's a whole nother, mainly Carrie's fault. We didn't, we just didn't know. But I was so proud of Landon because I'd watch him during the game, and I can still see him standing when his teammates were on the field with his hands grasping the chain link fence and cheering. I mean really cheering for his teammates. Cheering when somebody made a great defensive play. Cheering when somebody hit a home run or got a hit. I don't mean just pretending to cheer. I mean cheering with all his heart. I was more proud of him doing that than I would have been if he had been making good plays on the field. Because it takes a lot of character to not be jealous, to cheer for those who are on the field when we're left in the dugout, to cheer for those who make a touchdown when we're on the sideline, to cheer for those who get what we believed was rightfully ours. I was so proud of Landon and a little bit ashamed because I'm not sure I could have done that. It gets better with age. But I've spent way too much energy in my life jealous of the accomplishments, the successes of people I considered my peers. So I join you in confessing our sin in understanding our identity and in redefining our understanding of success. Because frankly, life is way too short to be jealous. Hymn 325 is the hymn we're going to, 235 is the hymn we're going to sing. 235. 235. I invite you to find that. I invite you to sing. But I also am going to invite you to come forward. While others are singing, some of us are going to wait for you down here to help you talk about what it means to be a member of our church, to help you go public as Liz did in baptism, to help you talk about what it means to follow Jesus. We will be thrilled while others are singing. We're waiting. We will be thrilled if you will come. Let's stand please and sing.